Today, I had a chance to speak with Ben Proudfoot, director of the Oscar-nominated short, The Queen of Basketball, which charts the career of Lucia May, or Lucy Harrison, as she makes her way from the cotton fields of the Mississippi Delta to becoming the best woman's college basketball player of her time, only to find that there is no real way for her to continue her career beyond college and the Olympics. Ben has directed and produced dozens of shorts, and this is not his first Oscar nomination. In fact, his short, Concerto is a Conversation, was nominated just last year, so he's on a bit of a roll. And you can see why in The Queen of Basketball, which is just a very confident outing. In our conversation, we talk about many of the artistic choices he made in the film, and as you'll hear, they're certainly not random. He speaks to certain elisions in the short work, as well as how he achieves some impressive effects on the cheap. And even how the fact that he knows that many of his viewers will watch the film on their phone affects the way he shoots his subjects. The other thing that's apparent here is that Ben knows much, much more than he can pack into 22 minutes. If you have seen the film, you'll still learn a lot. He talks about the social context in which Lucy finds herself shortly after colleges and athletic programs were integrated. And he is notably deep in the history of women's basketball, especially at the collegiate level. Again, in a short, there isn't time for everything, but in our discussion, Ben demonstrates that what you see on the screen is informed by a much deeper wealth of knowledge of his subject. You can see the Queen of Basketball on the New York Times website or just search for it on YouTube. If you like this conversation, please take the time to follow us. It really helps others who love documentaries find us. Coming up, my discussion with Ben Proudfoot about the Queen of Basketball. Ben, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you very much, Michael. Congratulations on the film and on the nomination. Well-deserved. Can you just quickly tell us who Lucia May Harris is? Lucy Harris is one of the greatest athletes of the 20th century. She was a pioneer in women's basketball, born in 1955 to sharecroppers in the Mississippi Delta. And she grew up to be the first and only woman officially drafted into the NBA, first woman to score a basket in the Olympics, first woman and the first woman of color inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. Just one of the most accomplished athletes in her field and someone who unfortunately history forgot until now. How did you find out about Lucy and settle on telling her story? It, it wasn't as much settling as much as being tugged with such electromagnetic fury in that direction that there was no resisting. I found out about her story from Haley Watson, who's a fellow director and cinematographer. Haley knew that I was interested in stories where there was a big gap between someone's significance in history and how well known they were. She came across Lucy's story, and I think she sent me the Wikipedia page for Lucy. I just read her list of superlative accomplishments. I was shocked to find that no one had made a documentary already. Not only that, there was no footage of her playing, very few photographs. Her name was often misspelled, and it didn't make any sense to me why this person, who seemed to be one of the most preeminent pioneers of the women's game was not being appreciated and respected as such. I found it pretty easy to get in touch with her, which also surprised me. I asked her if she would be willing to partner with me in putting together this film and tell her story. And she was 
very interested. And she said, yeah, come on over. It's a great story. I'd love to tell you. And she did. As we dig in here a little bit, just so you know, on Top Docs, we focus not just on the content of the films, but how they're made. One of the things I love about shorts is you have to make a lot of decisions, really hard decisions about what to show on the screen. At 22 minutes, even covering Lucy's life is that's hard. So I want to talk about how you did that, how this is like it, unlike other sports documentaries, and then what's spoken, but also what's not spoken in the film. So let's start with Lucy. She's really at the heart of your story. She's a dominant on-screen presence. You start by having her sort of unannounced talk about who she is from Sharecropper's daughter to one of the all-time greats. And then throughout the film, she really holds it together. She narrates the whole thing. Her lovely face regularly appears in these tight close-ups, tying together all the archival pieces. Can you just talk a little bit about how you structured this film? You're right. Lucy tells her own story. That's a very specific type of documentary because oftentimes it's the director telling their own story. In this case, it's Lucy telling her own story in her own words. In terms of the structure, the majority of the film focuses on her incredible ascent from learning the game of basketball to being basically the greatest female athlete. I think one of the most sort of tragic turns in the film is when at that point of peak performance, there's nowhere for her to go. The WNBA wouldn't exist for 20 years. And that continental shelf of opportunity really just sucks the air out of the room when that comes along. And then Lucy was brave enough to explore her mindset at the time, mental health struggles that she faced, and the incredible tenacity and persistence that she showed on the court. She showed in spades off the court by raising an incredible family of four children. She's got this great energy. She's clearly proud of what she's done. She presents herself in a confident way, but she isn't overawed by her own incredible success. Can you just talk about her presence in the documentary. I think everybody who watches The Queen of Basketball falls in love with Lucy. So many people have said to me, I just want to give her a hug. She's such a charming storyteller and so inviting and generous and sweet while narrating the story of how she's the most feared and dominant athlete of her time. She's a compelling storyteller. I think one thing that's unique about this film and about my style of filmmaking that people often bring up to me is how tight the interview frame is. And I think here with Lucy, it really goes to show how much a tight interview frame can expand the sensitivity of the film. We're used to framing documentary interviews in a wide when we're taught in school that, you know, seeing somebody's hand gestures speaks volumes or seeing what the room looks like around them and things like that. And that's not untrue. But for me, especially when you're dealing with people who aren't leap off the page storytellers who are capturing your intention with song and dance, if you get close enough, you will see all the drama and all the nuance and all the subtext that you possibly could ever want, so long as the lens is close enough to the storyteller especially in a world where probably 95% of the people that have seen this film have watched it on their phone, that close-up interview is essential in bridging the gap between the audience and Lucy to try to make it feel as intimate and personal of an encounter as possible. I hadn't thought of that form factor. That's really interesting. We move quickly through her childhood when she's not in school or picking cotton, she's playing basketball on a rim that her family had. She's tall, 6'3", 
but has to learn some of the skills to be a great player. And I thought it was really interesting. We think of the Mississippi Delta, especially at this point, late 60s, say, as really cut off from the rest of the world. But she's able to see on television Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and especially her favorite, Oscar Robertson. And that seems to open up the world to her. As she tells so well in the film, she would put a quilt over her head and over the TV and watch these games in black and white late into the night. I think it must have been incredibly inspiring. Lucy grew up in Minter City, Mississippi. The nearest sort of quote unquote big town was Greenwood. It was segregated at that time. When Lucy was six months old, Emmett Till was murdered in a nearby town, 10 minute drive away in Money, Mississippi. That's the context that Lucy grew up in. Don't go into that store, don't cross this line. It's the Jim Crow stuff. And so I think to see these incredible ascendant athletes on television was inspiring to her. And she hitched her wagon to that star and achieved it in her lifetime. And that does bring me into the next question. After a distinguished high school career, she goes to Delta State University in Cleveland, Mississippi. She's the only black player on the team. This is a short film. You had to make some choices. And I'm asking this question to be clear as an admirer of the film. I'm sometimes stuck by what's not said. She says she wasn't close to any of the players in the team, but you wouldn't know it on the court. But I think this leaves unsaid, and it's unsaid in the film, although I think there's ways you demonstrate it. Despite being set in Mississippi, you don't go deeply into integration or America's racial legacy. Can you talk about that decision? Yeah, I basically I followed Lucy's lead. She didn't talk about that. I thought maybe she didn't talk about that to me because I'm a white man from Canada. Uh, and she didn't feel comfortable. But after she passed away, I spoke with her roommate, Delta State at the time, who was one of the only other African-American students there. And I asked her that question just because I was curious. And she said, Lucy never said anything to me about any type of bigotry or harassment that came her way. Although she couldn't believe that she didn't experience it all of her life. I think there's no doubt that the color of her skin affected her trajectory, in particular her post-player trajectory, and the fact that her legacy took 45 years to be properly celebrated. But Lucy wasn't one to talk about it. So in making the film, I took her lead. She wanted to focus it on basketball, and I think she wanted to focus it on the fact that she was a woman and how that, in particular, blocked her from the opportunities she could have had. You and she do that very effectively. You do hint at this a little bit, though. So, for example, in the second national championship game, when the announcer talks about the stakes of the game, he says, national supremacy is on the line. As soon as I hear national and supremacy together, I already, mm, you know, and almost on cue, you show someone waving a Confederate flag. We assume a Delta state fan waving the flag for Lucy's team. That's right. It just shows the complicated nature of the forum that Lucy was in. The flag in question, which is such a disgusting emblem of bigotry and racism, was being waved to cheer on Lucy Harris, an African-American woman who wouldn't have been allowed to enroll in Delta State 10 years before. We wanted to put that in there, not to stoke the the flames of controversy, but just to put a pin in the very complicated and adverse culture that 
Lucy was in to remind the audience of the context of what the situation on race was at that time in that place. It was not long before that the state legislature encouraged and supported Mississippi basketball teams from withdrawing from competitions where there may be a black player on the opposing team. That was not long before Lucy came along. And so that context is essential in understanding who she was, um, how brave she was, and how much of a just breaker of walls and ceilings she was at that time. It's very quick and subtle, but it reminds you of all those things without having to go into them deeply. I want to talk about some of the ways that which I think you do a great job of both drawing upon the conventions of sports documentaries and in some ways reinvigorating them. In sports documentaries, often there's some point in which we see an adulation of a coach, right? Some suggestion that this older, more experienced person steps down and finds the star and without them, the star could never have made it. While we do hear that Lucy was taught some of the basics of basketball, like how to pivot, play the post and play defense, we never hear the name of her high school coach. And we only briefly see Margaret Wade, her college coach, and hear that she would tell them, give them hell before the games. You did not go into the coach, you know, deification route. And I really felt like you were making sure we focused on Lucy's success. Her college coach, Margaret Wade, has an interesting story herself. She was a student in the 19, I believe the 1920s or 1930s, when Delta State last had a women's basketball team. And the team with her on it was canceled because they decided that the sport was too strenuous for women. And all these many years later, Margaret Wade was teaching physical education in the area. And when Title IX was signed and some men at Delta State came up with the idea of, of starting a women's team, they pulled in Margaret Wade, which is this interesting superhero origin story. As a young woman, she had been forbidden from playing and now she's back with the federal mandate. She has been widely celebrated for her triple victory. There's a big statue of her on Delta State's campus. There's a major uh, award named after Margaret Wade, but there's a very clear trajectory of when Margaret Wade's success was, right? There's Margaret Wade before Lucy Harris. There's Margaret Wade during Lucy Harris's tenure on the team. And then there's Margaret Wade after Lucy Harris went on to be drafted by the NBA and play in the Olympics and et cetera, et cetera. It's not to diminish Margaret Wade, but I do think it's interesting that there's a big 15 foot statue of Margaret Wade on that campus and nothing on that campus is yet named for Lucy. That's a little disturbing. The first year that Lucy's on the team, they don't make it to the national championships, but the second time, amazingly, they do. And they're up against Immaculata, which is a Catholic university in Pennsylvania. I think you do a really great job of capturing the feeling of a competitive basketball game. Lucy mentions they had a number of nuns who were fans who beat on buckets. You show this, but I think the sound carries a lot of the weight here. You use Vivaldi's Gloria and G major, which is, again, I'm a Catholic schoolboy. As the listeners of this <laughs> podcast know, I recognize this, but it sounds like you put drums, like marching drums under it. How did you create this whole milieu to really give us a sense of what's happening? There's this really wonderful breakthrough moment in the story where in 1975, Lucy's little Delta State 
Mississippi Delta team gets all the way to the national championships where they are challenging the three-time reigning champion Immaculata. And like you said, they've got nuns in the audience banging on tambourines, banging on buckets, trying to distract the other team. And this is the big breakthrough win for Lucy's team. They disrupt Immaculata's reign and take the championships for themselves which is just this incredibly thrilling moment. And what a game. The archival footage of that game is just electric. The audience is packed. People are going wild. They're cheering. You can barely hear the announcer. I've never seen footage of a basketball game myself that is more electric than that AIAW championship in 1975. People were going bananas. As we were editing it, I just thought it might be fun to bring in something that was associated with the sort of divinity of the Catholic Church. But by the end of the, the sequence, actually the divinity lies with the talent of Lucy Harris. So you're right, it was actually a suggestion by our editor, Stephanie Owens, that she loved the idea of the Vivaldi, but that we needed to add something, some percussion or something that would elevate the, the sequence and just wanna make you move and also tip the hat musically to the high school drumline world that she was coming from at Amanda Elsie. And so that sequence really gelled together in this beautiful combination of music and sound and archival and Lucy's storytelling. It's probably my favorite sequence in the movie. And in the second game against Immaculata, I don't think there's any Vivaldi. It's just the drums. It's almost like you're passing the torch. I think that's an interesting read. Yeah, I think so. I have to tell you, you really watched the film. I appreciate that. <laughs> this is not an easy film to do. Like you have a major subject and you have all this archival and you've got to go through three games. One of the things you do that I think is really interesting is most sports documentaries would slow down on that third game, right? They would settle into it and really play it out. You speed up. Why didn't we slow down and make that a big like sense of accomplishment there? One of the reasons is because... This was about a career taking off by creating a sense of accomplishment. Okay, one, two, and three, right? When it came time to go to the next level and the access denied, it would have felt more like, well, at least she had that great college run. I think the bigger moment was A Star is Born in the first game. And this is the beginning of a long career. That's what we expect for basketball players who are breakouts in college. And so I didn't want to lean too much on the accomplishment of the three championships because I think Lucy handled those accomplishments quite handily. I, I don't know if it's fair to say that they were a given, but all of those games were pretty easily won, at least from what I've heard. And while they were accomplishments, they were supposed to be the first steps on a long journey. That's why I made that decision to not satisfy the audience with that third game. That's a great explanation. And then we get to Montreal Olympics 1976. This is the first time that women played basketball in the Olympics. The very first basket is scored against the Japanese team by the U.S. team. There's a shot by the Japanese team. The shot's rebounded, outletted, and it gets to Ann Myers, who passes it to Lucy, who scores, and says, that's history. I have to say, though, another kind of moment here, an unspoken moment is people do know whom Ann Myers is. Lucy was the first woman drafted by an NBA team and was the first woman signed by an NBA team, I believe. Yeah. Why do you think people know who Ann Myers is and not Lucy? Lucy stopped playing, for one. 
that's probably the most significant element. I don't think you can separate race from the equation. It's hard to diminish, if you've seen Ann Myers play, I mean, it's hard to diminish her excellence. I, I don't know enough about Ann Myers' story. In, and frankly, Ann Myers has been incredibly vocal and supportive of Lucy throughout this entire process. And just for the record, no aspersions being casted on Ann Myers by me. She's a great player. She and Lucy were she incredible. Is. Frankly, people know the name Ann Myers, but I'm not sure how well they know the story. I think she's another unsung. I think all of the women from that generation who played basketball, who helped build really the foundational elements of today's game are unsung. Ann Myers needs a documentary too. Yeah, that'd be great. And that leads me to my next question, which is Lucy's clearly at this very center of the piece, but there is the subject of the rise of women's basketball charted really against Lucy's life. Uh, positive side of it, which is 1972 Nixon signs Title IX, which, as Lucy says, guarantees that women will get whatever men have in terms of sports on campuses. But then on the negative side, for example, I didn't know this, that the NCAA had no women's league at this point. And then, of course, there was no WNBA at this point for her to graduate into. There's a really interesting thread to pull on with the AIAW versus NCAA thing. AIAW was run by women, by women, for women. And there's a really interesting moment not long after Lucy was through her college career where the NCAA and the AIAW actually hosted competing women's basketball championships one year before the NCAA won out to be the sort of definitive organization for both. That also could be a contributing factor to why Lucy wasn't remembered because people don't know what the heck AIAW is and the organization was dissolved. So where the NCAA may go back and celebrate its alumni, the AIAW no longer exists. So Lucy, who would be one of the most decorated AIAW champs, no longer has an organization to advocate for her because the NCAA subsumed it. But I think it's also worth saying that there's 50 years of a head start that the NBA got on the WNBA, right? We're celebrating the 75th year of the NBA this year. WNBA is 25 years old. And if you go back to, you know, Margaret Wade, it's 40 years where basketball is quote unquote too strenuous for women and all the resources were channeled towards the men's team. I think it's pretty clear why the highest paid WNBA player makes less than the, the lowest paid NBA player. And it's not because of talent. It's not because of what's entertaining. It's because of a giant unfair head start that the men's league had over the women. That's a really good note. I think it's really interesting how you tie together her post-career life. After Lucy stops playing, she gets married to her high school sweetheart, but she also suffers from bipolar disorder. And I appreciate you including this in a sensitive way. As she discusses what this means for her, you do something interesting. You show negative film and images of her from both on and off the court. Then you flash on the phone when a call's coming in from the New Orleans Jazz. And you show, again, you kind of move between full color images, like in 70s film stock look and these black and white kind of negative images. Can you talk a little bit about what are you trying to achieve? I wanted to somehow find a way to visually represent what she might have been going through from what I understand about bipolar disorder, bipolar one, uh, which is what she had. You have these short bursts of mania followed by long periods of depression. So I wanted to visually annotate 
that inverse and extreme experience that a color photo and its inverse negative representation externalizes. I also think that there's something that curdles in your gut when you combine the idea of a media frenzy with someone who has mental health sensitivities. It's something that I feel really strongly about, and I've made a few films about this, is like the news media and how, especially with like young people who are being celebrated or hounded or harassed by the media or by paparazzi and how that affects their mental health or exacerbates their situation. And so I felt that there was a little bit of exploration to be had there in terms of thinking about how this incredible media frenzy followed by total silence may have at the very least been an exacerbating factor in her mental health scenario. Towards the end, you have this really interesting shot. We start with a black and white shot of a residential cul-de-sac. A little girl rides her bike into the frame and then out of a frame, and then you pan to the right. You slowly transition from black and white to color, and we settle on Lucy and maybe some family members, probably in the driveway, talking to each other. It looks like one shot, a single crane shot. Yeah, so I know it looks like a very expensive crane shot. The reality of the situation was we had a scissor lift delivered for 200 bucks at the foot of Lucy's driveway. And that sort of slow pan across as expertly executed by our cinematographer, Brandon Summerhalder. So we, we wanted to get that high angle shot of her driveway. I had the thought that it might be a great scene to run the end credits over without music, just saying, here's the situation today. Here's the life Lucy has built today. And there was a little girl riding her bike around the street. It kind of reminded me of how Lucy described growing up. It was pretty easy to find footage from that very specific area at that very specific time of kids playing and riding bikes. So it's a little bit of a callback to the footage that we see of her growing up in Minter City, those happy sort of halcyon days of her and her friends in that neighborhood and the sort of colorization and very slight expansion of the frame from that old eight or 16 millimeter mat into our 4-3 frame. The idea there that it was this sort of magical journey over time, bringing us finally into the present day, which is when she starts flipping through her her cinematic scrapbook, so to speak, and, and looking back at her career. Yeah, the scrapbook is really interesting, too, because you show, I think, some of the same things you showed before, but it's like we're looking with her. We're viewing her past with her at that point. Yeah, I mean, that's one of my favorite. My heart always leaps out of my chest when she goes, very impressive, right? You can just imagine her in her back room, alone in her house. You know, the sun is streaming through the window. She blows the dust off of this old scrapbook. The motes of dust are in the beam of sun. And she's looking through this old scrapbook with a picture of her face when she was the best basketball player in the world. And it's total silence. It's total wall-to-wall silence. And she's remembering that time. And that image, right, of this scrapbook that told that story, really what I wanted to do is I wanted to turn that scrapbook into a movie. And I wanted as many people as possible to watch it. And that just became our out-and-out goal and still is. Towards the very end, she says she has no regrets about going 
to the NBA. And she says, look at my family. Christopher is a lawyer. Eddie has a master's. Christina and Crystal have doctorates. Really impressive. They're all athletes. They're all obviously incredibly successful academically. At the same time, she says, but I would have had money. I would have been able to do some of the things I wanted to do. And you show images of male players like Kareem and Larry Bird sharing a bag of Lay's and Magic Johnson holding a shoe. It seems complex. She has no regrets. And yet, I mean, it could have been a different world for her. I think she doesn't regret her decision, but I think that she saw the incredible unfairness of the situation. Not only did those guys get to play for, in some cases, decades longer, they also became famous. And then they leveraged that fame into many more millions, and in some cases, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't think she regretted her decision, but I do think she saw the incredible inequity between two people of similar talent at the same time. And the only difference was their gender. One person has to become a high school teacher to make ends meet and rides the poverty line for her entire life while raising four children who are great American citizens and contributors. And her male counterpart, who's of equal talent and caliber, is stacking cash in Beverly Hills. What's wrong with this picture? That it is so stark. And the only difference between the two is one's a man and one's a woman. I think that just about tells the story about as well as you need to. And to me, when I watch that part, I just, I get red in the face. It makes me mad. Ben, where can people watch your film? If you're listening to this, I hope you watch The Queen of Basketball. It's available for free on YouTube. There's no paywall. There's no reason why not to watch this movie. You don't have to sign up for anything. Just go on YouTube and watch it. And if you like it, share it with 10 people. Let's get the story of Lucy Harris out there as it should have been 50 years ago. It's 22 minutes long, folks. That's the length of a sitcom without commercials. So I love The Office. I love Community. But turn those off for 22 minutes. Go watch this. This is an amazing life. And it's told with incredible skill. Ben, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much, Michael. And thanks for paying such close attention to our filmmaking. I appreciate it.